0: So this morning we begin chapter 3 in this book of Matthew. And hearing that scripture reading, especially some of those things toward the end, you might have noticed that this passage this morning is a little intense. We have the language of the wrath to come in this passage. We see the Bible call some people here, quote, You brood of vipers. And the final sentence of our passage even talks about how, quote, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so this is intense. And being intense, let me say it's a good thing that this passage is here in God's word. As obviously all of God's word is good for us to hear. But specifically, it is a good thing for us to hear intense passages like this. Because passages like this in God's word rightly should jar us a bit. They should make us pause a bit. And now as to why they should jar us and and make us pause, they do so not because this all of a sudden now changes anything we know that's true concerning Jesus and and the gospel or anything like that. Because because let's be clear, this passage we just heard read is still in the book, which is the gospel according to Matthew. And so this is still part of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is about how we are secure and loved by God because of what Jesus did alone and how we trust Jesus alone for ultimate peace and hope and security and salvation. And so the gospel is still true. And yet passages like this should jar us because honestly, they should make us consider who we actually are. And how we're responding to Jesus and his gospel. Because let's be clear. The truth is, this passage is intense simply because there were people back then. And there are still people today who say they believe in God. And who claim that they even want to follow God or follow Jesus. And they feel that they are somewhat religious. And they may even do things like go to church and try to be moral. But in the end, they may say and feel and do all of that, but not because they really love God or trust Jesus, but instead because they actually love their own goodness and are trusting in themselves. And for us, and especially for us here in church this morning, we need to know that that's still common, and therefore we need to make sure by God's grace that that is not us. Which is why as we approach a passage like this, what's best for us all to do here this morning is to, yes, read this passage and understand this passage, but especially to be honest with ourselves about our response to this passage. Because the truth is, God is here and he knows our hearts. Right? He knows what we're each like and therefore there's no room for mere pretension in our Christianity, nor is there any room for pretending, acting like something that we aren't. Instead, this morning, what we all need to do is, as always, yes, look at Jesus and and continually remember his gospel, but also, especially this morning, we need to look at ourselves and ask, am I genuinely embracing the gospel in Jesus? And really, not just for one hour on Sundays, but in my life, or am I not? And am I, therefore, more like the Sadducees and Pharisees that we're about to read about in this passage? That is the overarching question for all of us to keep in mind this morning. But all that said, that then leads us to how we will go through this passage together in God's word. And so, as always, we're going to go verse by verse through this passage. And to cover what's here, we will basically go step by step asking three questions of this passage. Three questions. And as for what they are, first, we'll begin by asking the simplest question that kind of sets the stage here, and that's, so what is going on here with John the Baptist? And then second, we'll follow that up by asking, and how did the people respond to what was going on with John the Baptist? And then third and finally, we'll end by asking, and why is all this so serious? For them back then and for us today. And so in summary, three questions. What's going on here? John the Baptist, what was the response? And why is all of this so serious? All with the goal of, yes, being warned and being honest with ourselves. But also, again, remember, this is in the good news. And so in the end, our goal isn't just to be warned or just to look inward. But in all of that, our goal is to be drawn more toward our Savior this morning as well. But all it said, church, let's begin our first section together. And here we will be in verses 1 through 4. And again, we're asking, so what is going on here with John the Baptist? And to answer that, we'll basically have two steps. Two steps. First, just talking about John the Baptist himself, and then talking about what he was saying and preaching. But to begin, let's just read all of verses 1 through 4. And So remember, last week, if you were here, we ended chapter 2. And we left off with Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus settling down in Nazareth where Jesus amazingly grew up and basically lived in obscurity for around three decades. But now in chapter 3, we we fast forward many years to right before Jesus' ministry, and this happens. Look down at your Bible's church, verses 1 through 4. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And so we'll stop there for now. And so what's going on here? Well, again, first, let's just start with John himself. And so concerning John, to begin, as we all know, he's called here and he's known in history as, quote, John the Baptist. And that's simply because a main part of his ministry, as we'll see, was baptizing people in the River Jordan. And just quickly, that description may especially sound weird to us now because the term Baptist is now a Christian denomination, but literally in the Greek here, it's just John the Baptizer because he's the John who baptized people. But then second, and more important concerning John himself, now notice what's said there in verse 3 of him. So in verse 1, he comes preaching. Then in verse 2, we see what he's preaching. We'll talk about that in a second. But then in verse 3, notice how Matthew decides to say that John's coming on the scene isn't random. Instead, it's foretold in the Old Testament. Look again at verse 3. It's so clear. Quote, This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And hearing that, you can just tell that's significant. And it's significant not only because John, therefore, was fulfilling something written hundreds of years ago in the Old Testament. That's true. But even more than just that, it's significant because what then is John actually doing here in his preaching and his baptizing? Well, he's not merely or mainly preaching and baptizing, but he's mainly preparing the way for the Lord. And now, who is the Lord? Well, we know, right, reading Matthew so far, that the Lord is is Jesus. But concerning them back then, here's where it gets amazing. Because back in Isaiah 40, which is where this quote is from, the Lord there was clearly the personal name of God. Yahweh, as the Jews back then translated God's name as Yahweh, God's name Yahweh as the Lord out of reverence. And we still kind of do that in our Old Testaments. And so John's ministry is to baptize and preach and prepare the way for Yahweh, for God. But as we know, who specifically though is that? Well, it's Jesus. (laughs) Which, which does show us again that Matthew, who was a disciple of and walked with Jesus, he knows that this Jesus is no mere man, but this is the Lord God himself coming. But all that finally leads us of concerning John himself to verse 4. And briefly there, we hear about John's weird camel hair and his leather belt and his eating of locusts and wild honey. And we probably hear those descriptions and just think, well, that's just weird. And in a way, it's supposed to be. But even more than just weird, actually what both of those pairs are supposed to point us to is the fact that John was a prophet. John was a prophet, specifically a prophet like Elijah. Because without getting into too much detail, we know that because first in 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah is described as this, quote, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And so John the Baptist looks like Elijah. And then in addition to that, the eating of locusts and wild honey also points to him being a prophet. Because in brief, those were things that the poorer people in the wilderness ate. And back then it was known that a true prophet probably wouldn't be a wealthy person, but a poorer person who didn't look impressive at all. But anyway, so that's John himself. He's the baptizer. He's preparing the way for the Lord and he's a prophet. He's speaking for God himself. And one last thing on that, just to be clear, the fact that John was a prophet was a huge deal. Because remember, at this time, the the, the Jews thought and knew that God had been silent with zero prophets for around 400 years since the days of Malachi. And so it's in that context that, that now this man, John, appears on the scene. He's looking like Elijah, and he's pointing to something huge that's about to happen. He's preparing the way for the Lord God himself to come and finally visit his people. And so that's John himself. But that then leads us in the section a little more briefly to what John said. And that's now simply summarized there in verse two. So look there again. It's preparing the way for the Lord. John's main message apparently was, quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's it. Now, he obviously said more, but that's a summary of his message. And now we could spend a long time on that because that's jam-packed information. And not only that, but actually, as we'll see in a few weeks, when Jesus himself begins his ministry in chapter 4, his first sentence is the exact same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this was and still is an important sentence to proclaim. But the, but the question is, well, what does it mean? Well, first is that call to repent. Repent. And as to what that word actually means, it's important to get it right. Because we all probably assume something when we hear that word. But as one commentator I read this week put it on this word, he said, quote, What repent means is not a merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person a fundamental turnaround. And I, and I think that's helpful, because think about it. When we each hear repentance, depending on our upbringing, we may think of different things. Right? For some of us, if you grew up in a Catholic or one of the more Eastern Orthodox traditions, you may hear that word as more of something like doing penance. But biblically, it definitely doesn't mean that. It's not mainly about doing something. But then for other of us, we may hear repentance and just automatically think of feeling sorry or having grief but that's also not exactly what the word actually means in the bible and then finally for others of us we might have heard that the word repent more literally means to change one's mind and while that's the closest the word does not only include the mind it's not just changing our opinion on something for example instead really the biblical idea of repentance especially in a context like this is as the commentator said quote A radical transformation of the entire person. A fundamental turnaround. Or to say it most simply, it's you're going that way in your mind, in your will, in your life, in your heart. You're like that, but you need to twist around. You need to turn. You need to be changed. You need to be radically different. That's repentance. Which, if you're tracking, means that when we're called to repent in the Bible, in a sense it is impossible for us to do on our own. But that's kind of the point. We need God's grace even in our repentance. But that is still the command, repent. And, and why, though, should we repent according to John? Well, quote, for, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And hearing that right, right away, it should remind us of the king. Of Jesus, because we, as we know from multiple times now in this book of Matthew so far, Jesus is king. And so the kingdom of heaven is Jesus's kingdom. It's his reign coming, which finally is why the kingdom is at hand, because Jesus is coming. And just so you know, on that term at hand, in Greek and in English, the term is intentionally vague. Because you might hear that term at hand. You might wonder, does at hand mean it's here or does at hand mean it's close? And the answer, cleverly, is actually both. Because on the one hand, Jesus brought the kingdom, but also the kingdom in full isn't here yet. And that was true even for John and his listeners. But anyway, so I know that was maybe a lot, but that's our first section then in our answering the question, so what's going on here with John the Baptist? John was a prophet. He was preparing a way for the Lord. And the Lord is Jesus. And John tells his people, repent, change, be radically different because God's heavenly kingdom is at hand. And now for us, just just slowing down for a second before we do move on, we should realize that, yes, some of that language used here, like repentance or the kingdom of heaven being at hand, some of that language we may not use as often these days as other biblical language, like trusting in Jesus or, or loving God. But we need to be clear. What John says here is still a big part of the message of Christianity. And we know that because, again, Jesus himself uses the same exact language. And we know that because if you think about it, our message is still to the world and to all of us. It includes the fact that you and I and the world and everyone in it, we need to be radically changed. We need to repent because God, the king, he reigns. Right. And implied in that is that we need that because on our own, we're not right with God, the king. And now how that radical change happens and and how we can be right with God, the king, we need to read on. But that's why John was preparing the way for Jesus, because this is the preparatory message that we need to hear so that we can receive the gospel. But we'll talk more about that later. But anyway, so that's our first section in question, setting the stage. But that finally leads us, church, to our second section. And here now we're asking, okay, so that's the message. But how did the people respond to what he was saying? And here we'll obviously talk about our response as well. And here we'll be in verses 5 through 10. And in short, we're going to see two main responses here, two main responses. The first talked about very quickly. The second is elaborated on. And so we'll take them one at our time. And so that's John's message. But how do the people respond? Well, for the first response, church, now look at your Bible and look at verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6, the Bible continues. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so there's not a ton of detail concerning what exactly that all looked like. but, But just imagine the situation. It's really happened in history. So this prophet appears on the scene. After 400 years of silence, he looks like a prophet. He speaks like a prophet. And so what happens? Well, basically, as we see in verse 5, a lot of people are interested. (laughs) Many people are going out to him. And that's why, by the way, Matthew uses that language of all Judea and all the region. Because although it probably wasn't every single person, still language like that can be used to convey something like all the city was going out to him. And so that's the first part of this response, was interest, but that's not all. Because notice, the people here aren't merely interested. Instead, they, they amazingly respond to what we see in verse 6. They go out to John and, quote, were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sin. And now on this whole idea of John the Baptist's baptism, overall, we do need to know that this was a unique time in redemptive history. Because although we still practice baptism like we will next week as Jesus commanded us, as for John's baptism, almost everyone agrees it was a unique preparatory thing right before Jesus arrived on the scene. And honestly, if you read about it, scholars love to debate where exactly John the Baptist, he got his idea of baptism. And on the whole, we're not exactly sure. But what we do know is that number one, his baptism was symbolic specifically of this repentance he was calling for. Right? This change. And you can see that if you skim down just quickly to verse 11. You see John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Because in essence, it means that John's, in John's baptism, the people were going out to him to basically symbolize the fact that they wanted this repentance. They're saying, they're, they're going in the water and they're saying, hey, I really want this change. I realize I need repentance. And now, importantly, this does not mean that the baptism itself accomplished the repentance or the change for them. And we definitely know that because think about it, sadly, we know that the vast, vast majority of these people who were baptized by John did not, in the end, embrace Jesus. And so this baptism didn't change them. It was a symbol that they wanted change. And so we know, number one, that John's baptized Baptism symbolized repentance. And then, number two, what we also know is what we see at the end of verse six, and that's that part of his baptism was that people were going out and also confessing their sins. Now, in putting those two together, it makes sense. So, so, John comes, he's preparing the way for Jesus and the gospel. And what's his message? You need to be changed. Because God the King is coming, and therefore he invited people to symbolically be baptized to show they really wanted that change, and and people do it. And as they do it, they confess their sins, all in preparation for God the King who's coming. And now more could be said on that, but that's the first response here. And quickly, just to be clear, this response is admirable. And we should be like this in a sense, because although, yes, this response in itself didn't save, Because just wanting change isn't saving. And although just confessing sins doesn't save either, still feeling those things surely was to prepare them and it can prepare us more for Jesus. Right, Thinking and feeling those things can prepare us for the Savior who can change us, for the Savior who can forgive us. And really that's the point. And so that's the first response. But that then leads to the second and really opposite response, which is covering a lot more detail here. And now for this, let's read those verses in 7 through 10. Look down your Bible verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid root to the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So first and all that, notice in verse 7, importantly, that these Pharisees and Sadducees, who were basically the religious and civil leaders of the day, they come But Matthew is actually clear to say that they were coming, quote, to his baptism. And that language is important because most likely it means that they didn't come to be baptized themselves. Instead, as we know from elsewhere in the Bible, they came merely to check out what was happening. And probably in a skeptical way, which therefore is why John responds the way he does and on his response to them, he starts with three bold assertions, three bold assertions. First, he calls them a brood of vipers or a family of snakes, meaning they are venomous. And then second, he sarcastically says to them, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Meaning you, you are coming to flee from God's judgment. How ironic. Which then third and finally, he tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Meaning the only evidence, Pharisees and Sadducees, of a changed life and repentance is a changed heart. Which ironically, they as the religious leaders didn't show they had. And so that's how John starts. But the question is, and the the question, think about it, I'm sure the average Judean who was hearing this probably had. The question is, but why? Why? I mean, what's so wrong with these Pharisees and Sadducees? And it's that which John answers in verses 9 and 10. And because they're so important, just look there again. Because think of it this way. the first response is, yes, I need this change. I want repentance. And so I'll be baptized and confess my sins. The second response isn't that. Instead, what is it? Look at verses 9 and 10 again. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so there's a lot in there, but in basic. The idea is the second response is simply presuming to have God on your side. Presuming just to have God on your side. And why? Well, because of your race or because of your upbringing or tradition And this would apply certainly today to any other sort of presumption that you're simply on God's side based on yourself. Like you think you're a pretty decent person or because you're not so bad or just because you think this God stuff isn't that big of a deal. And so, of course, he's on my side. Right. And we can say that that would apply here because, remember, this is contrasted here to people who are coming and they're confessing their sins in humility. And so what's the opposite of that? Well, it's not only not confessing your sins, but it's presumption. In pride, it's essentially thinking, nah, I don't don't really need that change or forgiveness or anything like that. I'm okay. And, And the point here from John the Baptist in God's word is that is dangerous. It's wrong. That's even venomous and devilish because God is coming. And you're basically putting yourself on his level by presuming you're so great and trusting in yourself. And that's why in verse 10, John uses that language of the axe, cutting down the tree and reminding them that if a tree doesn't bear good fruit, it'll ultimately be cut down and thrown into the fire because the point is, sure, you're trusting in yourself and you're presuming you're okay with God on your own, but look at your life. You should know. How messed up you are. You should know that you need repentance and change. And you're going to see when God the King comes that you are not on God's side on your own. And so that's these two responses. And as you hear that, let's be clear. The contrast here between these two responses is supposed to be really drastic. Because remember, it is the average Judean who's just humbling themselves, going out to the River Jordan and being baptized because they they know they need change, and so they're confessing their sins. But what about the moral, respectable Pharisees? What about those religious civil leaders that people looked up to like the Sadducees? Well, they don't do that. They don't feel that because of their pride. Very people who think that they are closest to God are furthest, John is saying. And why? Because of their pride which which, hearing that, I'm assuming you can already see how that really does apply us to us then, right? Even today. And that's why, again, John the Baptist was doing exactly what he needed to do to prepare the way for Jesus. Because this message still is the only way for anyone truly to prepare to embrace Jesus in the gospel. Because before any of us will genuinely love Jesus and appreciate what Jesus did for us as good news, we must realize that we need this good news. Because think about it. If you you presume that all is basically well with you and God because you're kind of great or because you're not so bad or because of your upbringing or your race or your goodness or your morality or your church attendance or anything like that, if that's what you do, then guess what? Well, sure, you might believe in God and in Jesus' existence, but in the end, you won't truly receive Jesus, glorify Jesus, rely on Jesus, embrace Jesus' gospel message. And why? Because essentially, you kind of don't think you need to. Instead, you'll be loving and relying on yourself, your goodness. There's, There's no real need for deep appreciation for Jesus because you feel like you've got it. Right? And that can happen even for us as Christians in our daily lives as well. We can fall into that trap. But on the other hand, if we're more like these Judeans, just feeling, man, I, I really need change and forgiveness. Then guess what? Well, that's, that, that's when we think of Jesus. Then we'll be in a place where we can genuinely love him. Not because we're so great, but in fact, it's because we realize we're not so great. And that's when the gospel becomes such good news. And so that's our second section. But that all finally then leads us to our third and final section. And here we're just in verses 11 and 12. And we'll be asking, and why is this so serious? And so we will read these verses and then we'll talk about it. So that's John's message, that's their response. But that leads John to finish with these verses. Verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn. With unquenchable fire. So to begin on those verses, notice, if you think about it, our passage has gone from first focusing on John the Baptist to then focusing on all the people who were responding to him, to then focusing on the Pharisees and Sadducees, all to now here very clearly in verses 11 and 12, focusing on Jesus, on Jesus. And this makes sense because John is preaching and baptizing people, and people are responding. But remember, the main point in all of this, the main point for us is that God the King is coming, and he has come. Or as John says in the middle of verse 11, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. And so this isn't ultimately about John, nor is this even ultimately about people's responses. Instead, it's about the mighty one who is coming. And just so you know, that term mightier than... That John uses is a term that's used about God in the Old Testament a few times. And so that's who these verses are about. But still our question of this section is, but why is this so serious? And here's where it all sorts sort of comes together. Because notice in these verses 11 and 12, there's first a big positive result of embracing Jesus. But then there's also a serious negative consequence for not and, and John the Baptist is intentionally putting the benefit and the consequence next to each other. Because first, notice the positive benefit of embracing Jesus. So Jesus is coming, and we want and we need change. And so what's the first thing that John says here about this coming Jesus? Well, notice verse 11 again. He, John, only baptizes with water for repentance. Meaning, the water immersion that they was, were doing was a symbol that they wanted change. Right? But but who's coming? Well, in basic, the one who will actually be able to bring about that change in repentance. You see that? Because in short, that's essentially what this he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit phrase means. Because although honestly, there's a lot of unhelpful and I think unbiblical teachings that use that phrase, especially today. just, Just think about it from the logic of this passage. Or just of the New Testament in general. Because the idea is, if you're tracking, so we need change. Deep change. Not change that makes us perfect in this life, but genuine repentance. And in John's day, people were going out. They were literally immersing themselves in water to show that they wanted change. But guess what? The the Lord was coming. The King of the Kingdom of Heaven was coming. And He would immerse people not just in water, but immerse his people with God's very spirit. And why? Well, implied here then clearly is to bring about that change. And and that's what the baptism of the spirit is, and Jesus gives it to all his people. And that's why in the New Testament, it's not some secondary thing after conversion that only some people get while others don't. Rather, it's what happens at conversion. When we come to Jesus, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, quote, for in one spirit, we all were baptized. And so all Christians have this. Or for example, Titus 3, 5, when Paul calls conversion, quote, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so the point here of John the Baptist preaching is the mighty one who is coming He will fulfill your desire for repentance, for radical change, by immersing you in God's very spirit to bring about that change. John is saying this water baptism immersion of ours is only pointing to that spirit baptism immersion of Jesus. And that's confirmed, by the way, with how Jesus' baptism is said to be, quote, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Because fire back then wasn't only destructive, but it was refining. And so the idea is this change that you're looking for is coming through Jesus as he will renew and refine his people by the very spirit of God. And so, so that's the positive benefit in these verses of embracing Jesus. And for you and I, we should look at that as such a gift, that Jesus himself is the one who gives us his spirit to make us new and that he loves and he cares for us in that way. But that finally then leads to serious negative consequence of not embracing Jesus. And that's where John the Baptist ends in verse 12. And because it's such a bold and solemn verse, just read it one last time, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so as for this idea of a winnowing fork, that's simply what a farmer used to separate the grain from the outer useless layer of the chaff, right? So the farmer would would toss up the grain with the winnowing fork and and the grain, the wheat would stay, but the chaff would blow away in the wind. And so that's the picture. But then what happens specifically to the grain here, according to John and the chaff? Well, first, as for the wheat grain, as you can see, it's gathered into the barn. And that itself is a a mini picture of Jesus caring for and gathering his people. But what about the chaff? Well, soberly, quote, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And now that is not easy. But but the truth is, God's word, God's very speech to us, teaches us over and over, church, this reality of what the Bible elsewhere calls hell. And, And not only that, but it will actually be Jesus himself in the Bible who will talk about hell more than any other person in the Bible. And so this is a real reality. It's a, it's a true place in a sense. And, and why though? And, and what then is this place all about? Well, what hell ultimately is, is what we see here in verse 12. It is the end result of those who are sadly like chaff because they're sinners with unforgiven sin. And it's a place, therefore, of right, everlasting judgment here symbolized by unquenchable fire. And it's a place where people receive that judgment by Jesus. And we have to say that, that it's a judgment by Jesus. Because notice, this is very clear, but it's perhaps harder for us to hear. But because notice, who is the one holding the winnowing fork and exacting the judgment? Well, it's the same He who is coming, who changes His people by the Spirit, who takes the wheat. And in other words, it's very clearly Jesus. It's it's Jesus. And so again, the picture here is clear. This Jesus is coming. And for all of us here, He has come. And yet... And yet he's he's God, he's Savior, he's the King, and he brings all the benefits of the kingdom, of the, the perfect kingdom of heaven. And for those of us who, who trust him, who embrace him, this is incredible gospel, this is good news. Right? We can be changed, we're loved, we're secure in him. Not because we're so great, but because of him. Because he's the Savior, and yet also, the point here is, and the point elsewhere in the Bible is, and yet the Savior is also the judge. And in short... That is what John is very clearly warning his listeners with, with serious love he's doing. it, And it's how the Bible, not me per se, but God's word mainly, is warning us all here as well. Because friends, the the truth is God is just. He sees all of our sins. And like any righteous and just judge, it would be wrong and unjust of him to just sweep sins under the rug, pretend they didn't happen. Right, Sins really must be dealt with. They must be paid for. And that's the why Jesus came. The gospel is that Jesus died to pay for his people's sins. And therefore, if you know him, if you genuinely trust Jesus, take heart, you can be sure that you won't be the chaff because Jesus really took upon himself your specific sins. But on the other hand, if you don't know him, if you don't genuinely trust this Jesus, the Bible here is saying clearly that yes, this unquenchable fire is the future. And so that's this passage, church, which all means, as we now come to a close, it all means, and it all earnestly means that again, we each need to look at this and see if our response to this message is more like the Judeans here or more like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because let's be honest, The Pharisees' and Sadducees' response is all of us naturally. We are all so prone to just naturally trust in ourselves, in our own goodness, or even in our own religiosity, and we just therefore are prone to just skip over Jesus. But that's why we need passages like this. Because one last time this morning, brothers and sisters, the truth is on our own, we need change, repentance. We need forgiveness. We're not right. But again, that's why the good news is so good, because the savior, the king, the judge himself, he's come. He humbled himself. He loves us. He's able to forgive us. He, by the spirit, changes us, not perfectly in this life, but genuinely. And finally, he brings us into his kingdom forever, rather than giving us the hell that we truly deserve. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.